Well, good evening and welcome to all. Let's, uh, let's pray so that we can get started and, and work our way through this evening's material that sets the stage for uh, the process of hermeneutics or biblical interpretation. So let's pray. Lord God, as we uh, come again together this evening, it is with a desire that you would help us, um, you would equip us so that as we open your word, as we pray and read through it, and as we study it, our desire is to uh, develop the skill uh, to rightly divide, to properly discern the truth that you have delivered to us, uh, to heed the warnings, to uh, be encouraged where we are supposed to, comforted where needed, Lord, that your word would be rightly understood and have its proper effect. So I pray that as we consider the things we do this evening, um, really seeking to establish how important this is, I pray that you would help us get a sense of the uh, challenges and the richness and necessity of this task. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Now, most of us have not maybe heard the term hermeneutics before. Hermeneutics is basically the art and science of biblical interpretation. The whole point is we want to be able to not only read a passage, but after reading and studying a passage to get to the other side and understand what it actually means, what it actually teaches. And we know that different conclusions take place. There are all kinds of groups and churches and denominations that call themselves Christian, right? There are, there are some who pray to secondary figures, such as Mary and others that they deem to be saints. But we would ask ourselves, when the scripture speaks of saints, is it referring to a unique elite cadre of people who have performed a certain amount of, of miracles or something? Or is it referring to all those who are holy by union with Christ? And so all our language is affected by our understanding of Scripture. And, and there's just so much involved, so much so that I would say hermeneutics is one of the absolute most important things that anyone can ultimately study. And I say that because all of your doctrine will be built on rightly understanding the Word of God. If, if you misunderstand it, misinterpret it, then it goes a completely different direction. So get into this with me. I want to try to stick with the notes as much as I can. Um, Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. It is important because God's word is important. Uh, that word, God's word, is given in words. Those words have meaning. They join together in phrases and sentences that communicate a meaningful message. God saw fit to communicate with man in the languages of man. In different times, through different authors, God, by His Spirit, communicated His words in ancient biblical Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. 
Koine Greek. Now that's it. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear a, a loose cannon somewhere saying, you know, God, he, he spoke in his words, sometimes in Babylonian, sometimes in Hebrew. There's no Babylonian. Uh, there, it, he, nor did God give the word in Latin. Nor did God give the word in English. When God gave the word, it was in a specific language, in a specific circumstance, in a specific culture that clearly communicated in that environment. And so if we're the better our translations are, the better we're able to figure out what it actually says. And there are strengths and weaknesses to peculiar different translations. Now, listen. When the people of Israel returned from 70 years of captivity in Babylonia, they had during that time, particularly the, the, those who had been, many of them returning would have been born there, if not almost all of them. There are a few who survived and came back and saw the temple they were building was so much less than the previous one. But at 70 years captivity, most of those coming back were born in a different country. A different language, a different culture, different approach to everything. They were, they were uh, raised in a circumstance where they did not have a synagogue, they did not have practicing priests, they did not have any exposure to the Word of God. When they come back, even the, the, the language they might have it, be hearing in the homes and in the environment in which they're enslaved is the language of Babylon, not necessarily even their own Hebrew language. So the language will have been uh, tweaked some having been gone for 70 years and then coming back, which is why in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, we see this. It says, um, as they come together, they, uh, Ezra has even come. They bring the law. A bunch of men stand. They build a platform to do this. And God's word says this. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. Or King James says, distinctly. They read clearly or distinctly. And gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Because it's not enough to just read. I mean, that would really make my job way easier if, if, if all, all it was about on, on any given Sunday was read and then everybody gets it. But is that the way it works? And how many times have you maybe been sitting there prayerfully and you read a section of Scripture and you what does that mean? You know, when you read a verse, it's like, I, I don't get it. There can certainly be challenges. Or the footnote there says they read with interpretation. So they would read the law, but some of those words by now would be quite unfamiliar with those who had grown up in another place. So they're unpacking it, explaining it, applying it, so that they can begin to understand. Um, Regarding God's word, you will find that for many um, of the important New Testament doctrines that God delivered to us through Paul, they are hard to understand. 
Now, how do we know that some of the key New Testament doctrines that God has given to us are hard to understand? How do we know that? Of course, most of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. And one of the reasons we know that doctrines and passages can be hard to understand, many of us, by personal experience. We've read them, and it's like, mind is spinning, can't put the pieces together. But, of course, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, notes that that's not a problem exclusive to us. You, I want us to note this. This is, Second Peter is also written in the days of the apostles. It's written in a circumstance where they have a greater degree of familiarity with the original languages, a greater degree of, of, of agreement and understanding of the prevailing culture, because it's theirs. And they still found it hard. So think about that. Here we are, centuries later, completely different languages, completely different cultures. And yet sometimes you get some little fellow running around saying, oh, I understand everything. It's easy. All right. He, he, if it's easy, you're probably wrong on certain things. Now, get also get nervous when someone's making it harder than it should be. Indeed, they ought to be able to work through and unpack so that when it's done and you, and you understand the elements of the language and the elements of the culture and, and the flow of the passage, you, you're able to see it. And it's like, yeah, all right, I put it together. I don't have to read between the lines, but now it's clearer that I got a little background info. It said this in 2 Peter, our, brother, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I don't even get no amens. Okay. All right. We don't speak those languages or live in those specific times or cultures. We need to put in the effort needed to understand correctly. Also, since God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our thoughts, as it tells us in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, we have a tendency to misunderstand. Uh, it, it could be consciously or unconsciously by reading our thoughts into a passage, which is called eisegesis, right when we want to draw out of a passage, exegesis, what is actually there and then what it does mean. If we are untrained, that is ignorant, we are in great danger of destructive misunderstandings because the rest of verse 16 of 2 Peter 3 says this, uh, of those things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Now, that's, it's interesting. It's not twist to their own mistake. It's not twist to their own error. It's twist to their own destruction. That's a really strong word, isn't it? 
Because you get certain doctrines wrong, you're done. You don't understand that Jesus is the Son of God. That He was fully man and fully God. That He bore our sins, the sinless one became sin for us so that we be made the righteousness of God in him. If you, if you don't get those things, if you make Jesus just a man, you, you, you miss it. You, you, you make him just God, then you, you don't have one who was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. One who knows and can sympathize with our weaknesses and our infirmities. Because he learned obedience through the things that he suffered, as it tells us in Hebrews. And so, if, if you don't have both of those things, but in our minds, how can someone be fully God and fully man? We've never met anyone like that, right? And if you do meet someone who says they are, yeah, they're wrong, you know, and let them know. Listen, my hermeneutics professor once uh, said as a warning, wonderful things in the Bible I see, most of them put there by you and by me. That's a strong warning. A better approach might be wonderful truth in the Bible I learn Spirit of truth, grant me the diligence and skill to discern. So that ought to be our cry. Now, that's, that's a humbling thing. That's a saying, I am dependent on God's help to get to this. So that's why we say there, there's an art and a science to it. But understand, biblical interpretation is also a spiritual endeavor. God's word is a spiritual word. Holy men of God were born along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's why we consider this to be God's word, not just the apostles' word, not just the prophets' word, but we call it the word of God. We'll still, we'll still often say, Paul wrote, and he did, and maybe Peter said, and he did, but let us not lose sight of the fact that these men were not just independently writing and declaring. Because what happens when you, when you divide this, this, again, this unique reality, you can't divide the fact that God is, Jesus is fully God and fully man. You can't divide the fact that the scripture is ultimately written by man, but it is fully superintended and divinely declared by God. Because otherwise, you get people who sometimes come in and say, ah, I, I like Peter. I don't really like Paul very much. You know, Paul's a little harsh, a little critical, possibly chauvinist. And it's like, what? Hold on here just a second. You can't start, you can't criticize the scriptures because these are all the things that God has purposed to give us through his appointed men. So, so it's not an accident. Uh, listen, the same professor also gave me a, uh, gave an example of how scripture can be horribly misunderstood. This is an extreme example of a woman who was very dissatisfied uh, and she read into the scripture what she wanted. She was in a loveless marriage, 
You've heard tale of such things, I'm sure. Uh, and a co-worker at her job was showing her some attention and offering affection. So husband, no good. This man seems good. Husband makes me feel bad and miserable and unloved. He kind of makes me feel a little bit special, a little bit nice. And so she was struggling with some degree of temptation. And the story goes that she went and asked her pastor what she should do. Now, not that her pastor's advice was wrong, but I think he could have been more helpful than this. He said, read the Bible. Which is never bad advice to read the Bible, but he could have directed her to specific passages that address marriage and our marital responsibilities and commitments instead of read the Bible. It's a relatively big book with more than a few words in it. And so, uh, so she uh, finds herself reading Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. It says, that ye put off concerning the former conversations of the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that ye put on the new man, which is created after God in righteousness and holiness. So, page 2, she decided, I think the Bible's telling me, Put off the old man and put on the new. Is that what it's saying? No. I mean, it does say put off the old man and it does say put on the new, but the old man isn't her husband and the new man isn't her co-worker. The old man is what? Some of us will know. The, the, the character, affections, and attitude that I had when I was dead in my sin and apart from Christ. The new man is, is, is who I am as a new creation in Christ who is being renewed after the image of the Son. So put off the former ways that I used to live, the things I used to love, the way I used to think, the way I used to speak, and put on those things that accord with Christ and godliness. Right? But she saw old man, new man, and based on what she was going through, she had a plan. The Bible told me. Well, no. And again... Jesus became poor in order that he might make many rich. And if we're having a hard time financially, we see the word rich and we might be thinking money. Whereas the scripture speaks of the riches of God's grace, the riches of his mercy, speaks of, of forms of treasure that, that are not things that are on this earth, that are stored in heaven. That, and we begin to realize, okay, riches don't necessarily mean earthly wealth. An old man doesn't necessarily mean husband. And, and we've got to study a little bit more in order to understand. And today is mainly to show you the, the challenges and complexities, and then we begin to work on the processes in the coming days. Um, further, sometimes when we're reading the Scripture, we'll read things that seem like a contradiction. 
For example, I ask you this question. Do we or don't we answer the fool? It says in Proverbs 24, verse 4 and 5, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So you're ready to take away from that what? When there's somebody playing the fool, <laughs> I'm just not going to engage him. It's not worth it, or I, it's going to make me out to be a fool. So I'm not going to do it. I think I know what I'm supposed to do. Then you read the next verse, and what does it say? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Hold on a second. So am I to answer not, or am I to answer him? And I ain't giving you the answer tonight. Just in case one of you be a fool. I don't know. No. The, 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 the point of it is, uh, you'll read one passage and it'll seem like, for example, those who are doing the McShane's reading have read this week Psalm 139, which speaks of the omniscience and omnipresence of God. I mean, he knows the word before it's even on your tongue. It's like, Wow. They're, 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 he searches you, he knows your thoughts, he tries you, see if there's any wicked way. There's no hiding secrets or sins from God. And then it goes on to also speak about he's omnipresent. Whether, wherever I go, where can I flee from his spirit? To the heavens, to Sheol, to the ends of... Even there, not only do I find out he's there, I find out he led me there. And so that passage profoundly speaks of that, but then you can read other passages along the way where uh, it might seem to say differently. For example, Abraham sacrifices or is prepared to sacrifice his son, and God stops him and provides the ram in the thicket for a sacrifice. But then God says to him, now I know that you will not withhold your only son from me. And we say, hey, didn't he know that before? Did, did, he, did he just learn that right now? Some passages you'll see, God will say, I withheld the rains from you and withheld, uh, uh, caused the springs of water to stop to see whether or not you would turn back to me. To see, you're omniscient. You already know if they will or if they won't. And so you've got passages that clearly declare his omniscience, knowing everything even before it happens. And then you've got other passages that just for a moment make you scratch your head and say, it seems like it was saying he's watching to see, to figure it out, to know. Now, I'm going to affirm right now before we go further, uh, there are answers to those narrative sections, those, those uh, unfolding story sections that don't deny the omniscience and omnipresence of God. God does not learn anything or come to now be informed and aware of something he previously did not. What the challenge sometimes is, uh, the, the meaning of the word know, 
in Hebrew and, and some of the key elements which we will look at in weeks to come. But I want to uh, uh, go on a little bit further. Uh, not only will we struggle with uh, a general bias at times or an increased bias, uh, bias due to certain circumstances, but we also struggle with the challenge of living in different culture and language than those into which the word was delivered. Now, um, some people insist on feet washing. Have any of you ever attended a church uh, that practices foot washing? Okay, I will tell you. Uh, we visited once a, a, a sweet group of saints down in Natchitoches, Louisiana. And every fifth Sunday, they have themselves a big old potluck and, and uh, uh, the Lord's Supper and a good old foot washing as well. You know, and, and so we will, in the pro process of it, again, foot washing is a little different. In those days, you wouldn't remove your nice leather shoes, you know, uh, remove your socks, and then put your clean feet out there to be washed. That, that wasn't generally what was happening. So we're going to work. But look, some people still do insist. And if you read it, Jesus says, I did this so that you will do to others as I have done to you. And so some just take it straight up literally, which we do ourselves of some other passages. So some insist on feet washing, while most do not. Some insist on head coverings for women or only for wives, depending on who it is, while most do not. Almost none insist on greeting one another with a holy kiss, thankfully, uh, uh, though this is mentioned more than the others. I mean, I give you the, the, the list of those passages. I mean, it's command after command after command after command, and we just whew, slough that one off. Uh, yet another one is commanded just one time in one single passage, and we latch on to that. It's like, what's, what's going on? Why are we doing that? And it may be right, but we've got to process it and make sure we're not doing it because I'm okay with this one, I'm not okay with that one. Because we would have to be a people who would say this, look, I am not okay with the kiss, but if I was convinced that that action is indeed what God required, then come on, baby. Right? We've got to be willing to change our position if convinced by Scripture. We can't be so stuck that, no, I ain't going there, so I'm going to find a way around it. I'm speaking to someone recently, and that's, that's often our tendency. Somebody said this, and I don't agree with that, so can you give me some verses that I can share with them? I said, so you're, you don't want to study and find out what the Scripture says. You just want verses to challenge them. No, no, no. Your goal can't be to go to the Scripture to further establish your present position. It has to be to go to the Scripture to understand what it says. And with a readiness, when necessary, to move your position a little bit. Again, how do we understand 
the statement that women should keep silent in the churches. Oh, I didn't put the verse there. That's in, uh, that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, when it seems they are permitted to pray and prophesy. 1 Corinthians 11. So the same book, 1 Corinthians, in one chapter says women are to keep silent in the churches. But in the same book, it says they should cover their head when they pray and prophesy. So is there praying? I mean, is it silent? What happens when it comes singing time? We talked about this brief on singing. So the men sing and the women lip sync. Is it? No. And so we've got to try to understand. Now, these words have meaning. They mean something. And we've got to wrestle with what is said. When is it said? What's the context and circumstance in which it is said? That we might understand when and how it applies. And when and how it doesn't apply. But it shouldn't be as simple as this. Well, I don't agree with that. Can't be like that. Because the reality is... My ways aren't God's ways. My thoughts aren't God's thoughts. So I can't trust what I agree with or don't agree with. I've got to study and bring my heart and mind into agreement with the word. Uh, further complicate, okay, even I say, uh, do we lift holy hands when we pray or do we bow our heads? I mean, how many times have you heard people say, all right, let's bow our heads and pray? Probably a lot, right? You don't really see that ever said in the scripture. You will see how at times people bowed or put their face to the ground or even bowed their heads in, in humility. But generally, here, who has ever said in accordance with, what is it, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, brothers, let us lift holy hands to the Lord as we pray. Would that be unbiblical to say that? Should we double it up? Lift holy hands and bow your head then it gets harder to pray because your lungs are somehow deflated. Further complicating these things is the way that language works. There can be idioms or figures of speech. And every different language and every different culture will even have figures of speech. Uh, ben and I were discussing recently, the figures of speech in America are different than the figures of speech in England even though it's supposed to be English. You know, it, if you tell someone, you know, just go put that in the boot of your car. What? That we say the trunk of your car. They say the boot of your car. Now, if someone says boot, you're thinking a boot. Oh, they must keep a boot under their seat and maybe some money stashed in there. I don't know. Our brain, because, because for us, a boot is never the trunk. But it is in English. And that's just between England and America. Throw in Elizabethan King James English, and you're getting even a world different as far as sometimes language goes. So I want to give you an example. Uh, one of the, I'm aware of a circumstance where, for example, you come to a foreign language and you speak with a translator. 
I know of a circumstance where someone was saying, you know, I, I, I faced this real challenge in my life one day, and I thought it was going to be impossible, but it was actually a piece of cake. And the translator's like, so he translates that it was a piece of cake. And the, and the people are really confused. They're wondering how it went from, from something that would be differ, difficult to an item at a bakery. You know, and, and there's just no processing of that figure of speech. The scripture also has, has figures of speeches that we don't know. And actually, weirdly enough, sometimes the translators have changed the figures of speech how they want to. Here's an example. Psalm 17, verse 8. You may have read this. There's three other places the same phrase is used in the scripture. Once in Deuteronomy, and I've forgotten the other one. Uh, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Well, here's two figures of speech. You know, One, do you have wings? I might ask you another question. Does God have wings? See, your, your, your mind is going, oh, but it is with a, no. And, and as an apple of my eye. Now, generally, that's obviously working from a time where somebody uh, really loved apples, and it was desirable. And some trace it back to the misnomer that the, the fruit in the garden was an apple, Eve ate the apple, which the scripture does not say that it was an apple, but it was a delight to the eyes, desirable, and so she ate, and so the apple of the eye means something greatly desired, so on and so forth. But, listen... The Hebrew here does not say anything about apple. There is actually no fruit in this verse at all. The word here is a compound word, which is kaishon bat ayin, which literally means, and this is going to make you feel uncomfortable, as a little man, daughter of the eye. which doesn't seem to have anything to do with apples. Now, this, the figure more scientifically as, as that which is of a, of a little man or, or as the little man in the middle, could even add that hint, it, it, it is often a word in the poetic language of Hebrew that would refer to your pupil which is in the center of your eye, okay? And then the daughter of the eye would, would add some degree of affection to it. So he will keep you sort of paraphrasing in the center of his eye with care and affection. Changed into from one figure of speech that if you render that literally, the little man in the middle, daughter of the eye, that makes no sense to us, change to something in the center of your eye with, with care and desire, the apple of my eye. Okay? So they jumped from one figure of speech to another figure of speech, which you got to know the meaning of those to get it. Which, by the way, 
you're going you're gonna to somewhere, someday, meet somebody who will say, this translation alone is the one true translation. Every word is exactly the right word, faithful and true. And it's not faithful and true. It, 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 even the supposed majestic King James translation here also says, apple of my eye. And there is no apple in that passage in the literal Hebrew. And I could show you a multitude of passages where uh, things are missed. But nonetheless, apple of the eye is not a bad thing to say in English because it communicates the same general idea in a poetic way that the Hebrew communicated in a poetic way to them. So to simply render it literal would, would, would leave us lost and so they went from one to the other. Now, we still understand that figure of speech, apple of my eye, but who knows if the next generation will understand that. You know, probably the next generation for them, this is an apple. So. All right. Um, so go on with me. Details regarding um, exact wording also in the scripture can make a big difference for certain doctrine. Galatians 3.16 says this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. You know, and the simple temptation for us would be to say, what a difference one letter makes, and that's still a true statement, but it's not actually true of this passage, because the word for offspring, as you can kind of see written there, and I forgot to transliterate for you, I'm sorry, is, uh, it says uh, spermati, and then the, uh, for singular, and then for plural, it's spermacine, so there's more than one letter difference. It's, a, it's the change from singular to plural. But small, small changes of a word change the doctrine. I mean, the, Galatians basically puts it down to when this promise was given to Abraham. Everybody's tried to think it was for his, all of his descendants. But the promise was to Christ. His uniquely, extraordinarily promised and prophesied descendant. And that it was referring to Christ and not all the descendants of Abraham that became the whole nation of Israel is distinguished by the fact that when God gave this, this word, Lazaraka, in Hebrew, in, in Genesis 12, 7, it was Singular. It, it, it would, if it was going to be uh, plural, it would have been lezarakim, as opposed to lezaraka. So that that little ending difference made a difference between one or many. And the and the Holy Spirit brings out through Paul that was not not just a random word. The specificity of the exact single or plural 
of that word was intentional. And if you miss that, then you miss where it leads you. Which in this case is to Christ. You don't want to miss that. Right? So further, we might even go and we'll say, even littlest parts of letters distinguish them from other words and other meanings. If you were to look, and, and sometime you can, right now, I, you, I, well, you can take my word for it. If, if you were to look at the difference between uh, a resh and a dalit in Hebrew, it's, it's just a matter of whether the letters are like this or whether it hangs over just a little bit. This little, this little part here makes the difference between which letter it is and what word it is sometimes. Because sometimes the rest of the spellings are, uh, are the same. And you change that from one letter to the other, you've changed the whole word there. You know? Because we change one letter in English. You know, I, I can't tell someone, you know, I need you to go dog a hole in my backyard. I need you to dig a hole in my backyard. Or maybe it could be done by the dog. Double up. But uh, one, here it says, Matthew 5, 18. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, we say iota, or, and not one, not a dot will pass from the law till all is accomplished. These are not even speaking of the whole letter. It's talking about little parts of the letter. That even the dotting, we would say the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T is the kind of the way that we would say it. That every single one of those details is superintended by God. Now, of course, for us, if you don't cross a T, it's an L. So that can be a mess. You usually can figure it out. But you don't dot an I, that's not a big deal. You can figure it. But that what the, it's, it's saying that all of these little things, now it's jot or tittle, if you're, you know, in the uh, uh, King James. But listen, further, we also have long-established traditional understandings that are based on translations rather than on the words that are given to us by the Holy Spirit via the selected human author. Some are so deeply ingrained and so broadly accepted and repeated that we don't even realize it. And I'm going to give you two examples on the next page. Now, there, one of the sheets there opens up and explains more, in more detail what I'm going to simply summarize for you right now. Who has ever heard of Lucifer? Who's, ever, who's never heard the name Lucifer? Okay, who has ever met anyone named Lucifer? No. And, and I find that's interesting that none of us have met anyone named Lucifer. It's a beautiful name. You may have met some ladies with the shortened version of his name, uh, Lucy. Which is, not, again, I'm going to note for you this. Look, somehow... Almost all English-speaking Christians, as well as those who have had missionaries in, from English backgrounds, are convinced that Lucifer is Satan's name. Have you ever heard that? Of course you have. Lucifer is the devil's name. Some will go so far as to say when he was in heaven, 
before he fell, his name was Lucifer. And some creatively even go further than that. He was an archangel. Does the scripture ever say that? No. Some say, and he was the leader of the choir in heaven. I'm like, where are you getting all this stuff? You know, it, it's fun, but it's fantasy. It's, it's, the scriptures don't say that. But listen, uh, you find this name, and I have the word name in quotes, uh, in Isaiah 14, 12. Now, how many here use a translation other than the King James translation? Do you know how many times your Bible has the name Lucifer in it? Zero. None. This word, even in the King James, appears in only one verse in the whole Bible. Now look, truth takes only one verse to be true. Let's not miss that. But if something's stated in only one verse, it's easy for us to mess up. God is so kind that most of the significant truths that he's given us, he repeats them. And he goes back to him, and he goes back to him, and he hits him from another angle and another angle and another author so that it gets through this thick calvary. I'm sorry, crania, skull, which is the next one we'll see in a moment. <laughs> but, but what happens, and I remember teaching years ago, and uh, as, as I'm working my way through uh, uh, teaching, uh, trying to explain these things and trying to understand, okay, um, what does the scripture teach us about the devil and about demons and so on? And I took for granted, like so many did, his name was Lucifer, so I'm preparing my proof text to teach, and I can't find it in my Bible. I'm like, ah, it's going to be hard to prove something when it ain't there. So what do I do? And said, well, do I choose this translation for only that verse? Sometimes we will if that translation renders it better, but we have to ask ourselves, why does that translation do it and the other one's not? And more than that, it's easier. When God gave us the Old Testament, it is primarily, means all except for a handful of verses in ancient biblical Hebrew. A handful of verses are in Aramaic, uh, primarily in the book of Daniel. Uh, but the majority of it is in ancient biblical Hebrew. And I've given for you there the Hebrew, which I don't expect you to read. I expect you to look at it and say, that makes no sense, which is fine. But on the next line, I've given for you a, a simplification, which is the specific word that is translated Lucifer by the King James translators is the Hebrew word Helel. So listen, when the Spirit of God, through the prophet Isaiah, was having written down these, this verse, he wrote not Lucifer, he wrote Helel. So if this passage is intended to give the devil's name, 
then the devil's name is Helel. But if it's not intended to give the devil's name, then it's not. So then if the Hebrew is Helel, why, where did the King James get Lucifer? I mean, if, sound them out. And uh, Hillel sounds like Lucifer. Doesn't sound like it. They don't go together. So how do they? How did it happen? Well, weirdly enough, it went from Hebrew to the Latin translation, and then from the Latin translation to the English. Now, why were the King James translators using the Latin word instead of the Hebrew word for their translation? You're going to have to ask them that. I have no idea why they did that. I scold them for doing so. Um, but you can see, and, I, and I've written it down, though you may not be able to read the Latin either, you can nonetheless see in bold print Lucifer. Do you see it? Now, as you see it, you'll note something interesting. When it was written by Jerome in the translation, Lucifer is a lowercase l, which means he's not necessarily stating it as a name. So let's keep going. What you see here also, I want to go on and see the Vulgate actually uses in th three different times, and I'm going to show you a second one, Lucifer. So Lucifer is only once in the King James, zero in almost any of the other modern translations, uh, three times in the Vulgate. One of the times that it is used in the Vulgate is in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And I'm going to read that for you in the King James. It says, we also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. That is generally seen as a reference to the brightness of the light of Christ being shown upon your heart bringing you faith and salvation. So listen, Jerome used the word Lucifer in 2 Peter in a passage that's a reference to Jesus Christ. Because for Jerome and everyone in that particular century, the, the, the word Lucifer was not the devil's name. Actually, I've given you in the, in the second handout, which, you, which I encourage you to read on your own time, I've, given you, I've shown you that in there, uh, there was in the 390s uh, uh, AD, uh, a leading bishop in the church whose name was Lucifer. Yes, Lucifer was a good Christian name because it means light bearer. One who bears light. It's a great name for a preacher. Lucifer was actually one of these men who was not only a pastor and church leader, but when the church was having the, what was called the Arian controversy, there was a struggle over the person of Christ, both the humanity and the deity of Christ. We're all aware of, hopefully, a man by the name of Athanasius, 
who fought for this truth. And there's a famous writing called Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. In other words, even if everybody else denies these truths concerning Christ, I am not moving. Now, though he wasn't moving doctrinally, he was excommunicated seven times during his ministry. Get out of here. We agree with Arian. Well, come on back. Maybe you got something. No, get out of here. Come on. What's But in all that, the, the leaders of the church would... Some of them would swap sides. All right, well, it looks like the majority's go going to Arian. Yeah, I, I think he's kind of, well, no, no, I think maybe. Well, Lucifer was not a flip-flopper. Lucifer was firmly with Athanasius. Ardently defending the deity and the humanity of Christ in an uncompromising way. And potentially in a bold and brutal way. Because when it was all said and done, and by the grace of God, the church then decided that the scriptures are clear, Jesus is fully God and fully man, Athanasius has taught truth, Arian is anathema, this is a heresy, Lucifer said, everybody who joined that fella loses their position in the church, done with these losers, to paraphrase, okay? And Jerome, who translated the Vulgate, was, was on this side. Nah, give them, forgive them, have mercy. No, they're supposed to be leaders, Lucifer would say, and they have proven to be compromised. They cannot be trusted. They're disqualified. And Lucifer was unwavering, unrelenting. They lost their chance. And Jerome was like, nah, nah, it's okay. Come on, it's love. And what happened is Jerome would call Lucifer and his followers Luciferians. And many think it is because he sees the pride of this king that he's being written on, which indeed may have a remarkable parallel to the fall of Satan, that, he, that as he's seeing this pride, he says, I know exactly what word I'm going to use here to translate Hillel. For this prideful man who's unrelenting and un Lucifer, <laughs> take that, you know. So, um, but Lucifer was a faithful man, and it was a, a reasonably common Christian name. I'm still going to discourage you from naming your son that, because that's not how it's commonly understood. You know, it might be appropriate to name your dog that. The, the second example that I want to give you here. So, so Lucifer comes not from the Hebrew. It comes from the Latin. It's added by Jerome hundreds and hundreds of years after God gave the, his word, which was Hillel. So if, if that is to be the devil's name, the word God gave was Hillel. A word man gave by translation was Lucifer. Man's words are not God's words. Same thing with Calvary. Who's ever heard of Calvary? Who's ever sung, lead me to Calvary? I love that song. You know, and, and I'm not going to stop singing it because we still have a context in which we understand it and it communicates accurately. But, but the fact is when you, when, that you won't find that word anywhere but the King James. Because for some reason, uh, 
instead of tra- every other translation, actually translates the word there. The word there is, is, is crania, from which we get crania, cranial, cranium. Maybe you've heard of it. Right? Our skulls. We, we may know it also by its Hebrew Aramaic name, Golgotha. Golgotha doesn't quite roll off the lips in terms of a song, lead me to Golgotha. It's a little bit harder to sing that one than lead me to Calvary, so we've gone the other direction. But all the other translations there say they led him to the place that is called the skull. The place that is called the skull. For some reason, the King James translators there said they led him to the place that is called Let's see what Jerome has to say in the Catholic Latin Vulgate. He says Calvary. Let's go with that. Why are you going with that? That's not the Greek. That's not the translation. Why are you taking an intermediary language and transliterating it instead of telling us what it is? But that's what they did. And so on through it. So, closing out. So almost all think that the Bible teaches that Lucifer is Satan or the devil's given name. But this is wrong. Because the word God gave there was chelev. Almost all think that the Bible teaches that Jesus died on Calvary. But this is wrong. The biblical word is kronion. If we can be so sure about something, And if something can be accepted by the vast majority and still be wrong, then how careful should we be? Let me pray and then I'll take a question or two. Lord, thank you that we could uh, spend this time and consider it. And Lord, we recognize that uh, as we see some mistakes and missteps of those who have gone before us, that that does not uh, mean that we are not prone to our own mistakes and missteps. God, our desire is to uh, see not only theirs, but also to see ours. And beyond all that, to see and understand your word as you've given it to us uh, uh, for what it intends. In Jesus' name, amen.